On this week's episode, coronavirus and immigration. Immigration is probably the first line of defense against communicable diseases such as COVID-19. You're supposed to be taking care of the people that elected you into office, and that's what it comes down to. And I think a pandemic like this fits every definition of threat to public safety. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., you are now listening to FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the third episode of Understanding Immigration Podcast. Podcast presented by FAIR. I'm Spencer Rayleigh, joined as always by Preston Hennikins from our lobbying department and Matthew Tregesser from our media team. In this podcast series, we hope to educate you, our listeners, on a number of important and high-profile topics in the immigration world. Today, we have a special episode. As I'm sure everyone is more than aware by now, the novel COVID-19, also called the coronavirus, has become a national pandemic, and countries around the world are taking pretty extreme measures to stop its spread. In fact, all three of us today are actually calling in from undisclosed locations to record this podcast because we're working remotely in order to practice safe social distancing. So Preston, let's start with you. Uh, Most people probably don't think about how immigration can impact the spread of viruses like COVID-19. So how does immigration factor in and what's being done on the immigration front right now to stop its spread? So, you know, immigration is probably the first line of defense against communicable diseases such as COVID-19. You see that a lot of the countries where it first really started, you know, we're talking obviously China, South Korea, Italy, France, all of these countries, one of the first things they did was they quarantined certain areas within their own states. So obviously China sanctioned off Wuhan. They prevented people from coming into you know, the city and from leaving it. Um, and that also then was reflected by, you know, some of their neighbors. You saw, especially with Iran, um, within days of their announcement that they had active cases and deaths from this virus, almost all of their land border neighbors cut the, um, completely shut down travel into Iran. So this is something that has been practiced, you know, not only by the United States, but by the world at large. And specifically, the United States took action against China early on by um, pretty much restricting travel from anyone, um, regardless of their origin, regardless of their citizenship, who had traveled to China in the past 14 days. And that was the first real travel ban that the U.S. did in response to this virus. And then, uh, as a lot of people probably saw last Wednesday, uh, or rather the March 11th, I should say, when the president held an Oval Office address to the nation and he announced that we were closing down travel um, from continental Europe. And then that was later extended to also include Ireland and the United Kingdom. Uh, so, you know, we have done a lot uh, so far um, from the immigration standpoint to try to stop the spread of this virus um, by person-to-person contact. And uh, as we record today, um, the United States and Canada just announced that together they had decided to shut down um, all but the most necessary of travel between the land border between Canada and the U.S. And I would be stunned if uh, we don't do similar, we don't come to a similar arrangement um, with Mexico in the in the coming hours, if not days. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're seeing this all over the world. I mean, on the micro and on the macro level. For example, if you look at Switzerland has closed off almost every border crossing with Italy right now. And of course, Italy has been especially hard hit with this. Right. And it's, again, it's a natural reaction and there's nothing, 
you know, nefarious about it, but the easiest way to stop a virus from spreading is to limit, you know, people's contact with other people who might have it. And one of the first things that you do is you put in those border restrictions. Um, and that's, you know, again, it's not something that should be controversial. It's not permanent. Everything the U.S. has done has expiration dates um, that the government can and probably will extend if the situation demands it. But that that doesn't mean that we're going to have closed borders forever. You know, once this once the you know the pandemic is is largely taken control of, it'll be back to normal. But you know, it's you know this is really one of those moments where you do look to the government to to shut down borders and to to protect the citizens of the country uh, by doing that. Right, and I th- I think it's so ironic that all these countries worldwide that have been affected by this pandemic. You know, they're finally realizing the importance of sovereignty and controlled borders. And, you know, when Trump in 2015, when he was running for office for president and he called for, you know, immigration restrictions and travel restrictions and even the construction of a border barrier, you know, all these leaders of these countries were calling him out saying he's, you know, a xenophobe for, for wanting that. Um, you know, how, how dare him. And now here they are doing the same thing because they realize, you know, uncontrolled mass immigration can really bring serious consequences. And it sucks that it, you know, it's taken a pandemic for them to realize that. But I think worldwide, you're seeing developed countries, developing countries all engage in this type of enhanced border security uh, protocol. Yeah, exactly. And there's no, I mean, again, there's nothing wrong with that. And like you said, you know, one of those countries, Guatemala, and then another country in, um, in Latin America, Chile, have both completely sealed their borders, which is actually pretty rare for compared to what a lot of other countries are doing, you know, including the United States. We've largely sealed off travel from countries that have high rates of the virus. So China, Iran, France, Italy, whereas Guatemala has completely shut down its borders in an effort to keep it from spreading at all. So in some ways, we could take a lesson from some of those countries that, you know, were calling us nasty names and saying that we were all these horrible things because we wanted to have control and and sovereign right to do what what we want with our borders. Yeah, absolutely. And even uh, I read an article yesterday saying that um, Mexico's health minister called the U.S. Americans, quote-unquote, a danger to Mexicans, adding that, quote, for both countries, it doesn't benefit us to have completely open borders, end quote. I mean, imagine if that came out of, you know, President Trump, the whole media would be in a frenzy. And obviously, you know, it's you shouldn't be saying stuff like that, but it goes to show you, like, you know, now that the spotlight is not on Trump, you know, the media and these leaders around the world are, are, are kind of quiet now. Yeah, there definitely seems to be a, a double standard there. Uh, like you had mentioned, if the roles were reversed, who knows what you'd be hearing out of, you know, the open border lobbyists right now. Oh, yeah. But, you know, uh, Canada and, you know, working with Trump has decided to shut down everything except for essential travel between the two countries right now. And it was essentially crickets. And I think it's important to bring into this as well that Trump and the administration right now is not acting outside of any kind of power that's been delegated to them. In fact, there is you know, a very recent Supreme Court case, Trump v. Hawaii, that affirmed that under Section 1182 of the Immigration and Nationality Act, the president had broad discretion to suspend entry of non-citizens into the United States if they were deemed a threat to public safety. And I think a pandemic like this fits every definition of threat to public safety. Absolutely. I mean, it it definitely uh, meets that definition. I mean, the amount of people in the United States, you know, being diagnosed with 
uh, coronavirus just keeps increasing and increasing. And, and that's the role of, of the commander in chief of this country is to, you know, protect the, the well-being and safety of, of the citizens. And that requires sometimes initiating kind of enhanced border security measures. And th- that's why you're supposed to be taking care of the people that elected you into office. And that's what it comes down to. And, you know, it's good that Trump and the administration are taking these initiatives. And like Preston said, they're not permanent by any means. They, you know, they're, te- they're temporary until we can get, regain control of of the disease and hopefully eradicate it. But yeah, it, it's definitely more so to, to protect uh, the interests of the public. Yeah, and, and this issue isn't without precedent either. In fact, uh, in 2016, there was kind of, I guess you could call it a mini crisis along the southern border when a migrant crossed the border from Mexico to the United States, was apprehended, and they found out that this this migrant had measles and infected, I believe, about a dozen other people during the time that they tried to get that person under quarantine. And in the same year, 2016, there are a number of Somalian refugees that were allowed into the United States despite having tuberculosis. And that caused, again, kind of a mini outbreak in their communities. So these stories aren't uncommon However, for the last, you know, 40 years or so, there have been very little in the way of health screenings for migrants coming into the United States. So my my question, maybe Preston, you could shed some light on this, is what legislative or executive steps could be taken to prevent another outbreak from this in the future, or at least to try to curb its impact on the United States? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the the main things has already been done, which is to ban specific travel from countries that have high numbers of cases um, and from countries that maybe the government uh, identifies as not being able to handle an outbreak if there was one. Um, an example of this is uh, a country like Somalia, which has a very weak central government, um, doesn't have a lot of health services that we would consider modern. Um, and of course, this is only an example, but you know, being proactive and not just reactive in which countries you're restricting or banning travel from, I think is very important. And I think that really is able to contain it um, from our perspective. I think something else that the U.S. has to look at is putting a moratorium on importing guest workers um, across the board. So that would include, you know, high tech guest workers from the H-1B program. Uh, a lot of you know a lot of whom come from China and, and from that part of the world, but also restricting travel from or restricting entry of lesser skilled um, non-immigrant guest workers like from the H2A and H2B programs. And the government uh, this morning actually announced that only uh, former H2A workers will be able to renew for the upcoming year for the H2A program. So those are, are things that you know the government has to really look at. Uh, if they're serious about stopping the spread of this disease, it's something else that I think needs to be done that it appears they're they're getting ready to do is that we really should close our southern border in a similar fashion that we already have um, our northern border. So allowing trucking and shipping uh, to continue, but not necessarily allowing uh, regular everyday travel. Um, so that is something that I think is very important uh, moving forward. Yeah, and I think that this this has implications even beyond just the immediate with the the you know the coronavirus crisis as well. You're you're looking at a whole lot of Americans right now that are self quarantining or who are unable to do their job because of you know the risk that it poses to others. So 
looking at this from just strictly a standpoint of Americans who are going to be looking for work in the coming months, it really doesn't make sense to try to expand guest worker programs in the middle of all this. But even going beyond that, you know, once we get to a point where we may feel like we need more guest workers or, you know, something along those lines, it just makes sense to implement some form of health screening before migrants, whether they're guest workers or refugees or any other classification, choose to come to the United States just to ensure that we're not bringing something into the country that could pose a health risk, not only to American citizens, but to other migrants, and even those who are traveling between countries on the planes that we bring them on. Right. And that's something that there is, you know, some minor health screening that goes on, especially when we enter, when, you know, Border Patrol or ICE encounters illegal aliens. But you're absolutely right. It has to be expanded to really screen for symptoms specifically of the coronavirus, um, because what we're doing right now is just not enough. You know, a lot of it now is kind of just, oh, how do you feel? Okay, great. Well, as long as you don't infect other patients, you're fine. Let's move on. And it, it has, that has to change, um, not only for the safety of, you know, American asylum personnel and border patrol agents, but also the migrants themselves, if they're being held in detention or if they're being held, um, you know, so, like somewhere else. I mean, that th- that would spread very quickly among a very vulnerable population. Preston, yeah, I, I was going to add to that. I mean, some of these migrants coming through the southern border, they may not show any immediate symptoms when they're apprehended or when they apply for asylum. Um, sometimes it might take a week or, or 10 days to show anything. And, you know, when, when Border Patrol, they're encountering, you know, I think last month they had 37,000 apprehensions at the southern border. I mean, that is a lot of people to go through quickly. You know, their resources are limited. Like you said, I, I don't know how well their medical, you know, testing and infrastructure really is at this point. And so, yeah, there is the opportunity for it to continue to spread if, if you know, Latin America or the, or the Northern Triangle countries end up getting more confirmed cases. I know they're actually kind of ironically the, the one region that doesn't really have many cases confirmed yet. Um, but as we've seen of, of how expansive this coronavirus is, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised in a month or so if they start seeing a, a huge surge. Yeah, this, this is really going to be something that requires cooperation across countries. So for those that are wanting to come to the United States from another country, that host country needs to cooperate with the United States in trying to maybe conduct some of these health screenings. That way you're not just essentially scanning someone as they arrive to the United States, even though that's important. You might be able to get some of these screenings conducted, uh, you know, days, weeks in advance. So if something happens in that time period, we'll know. In fact, FAIR, uh, we, we just released a couple of studies uh, related to this. The first one is public health security as national security. And that just dives into the issue that the United States no longer conducts widespread health inspections on new migrants entering the United States. And kind of highlighting that traveling individuals have the highest rate of infection uh, and of spreading disease, meaning that on average, they infect far more people than those going about their daily, you know, non-travel business in the United States. And mandatory health screenings, both by host countries and as migrants come to the United States, would help limit the spread of viruses and other diseases by catching them before migrants attempt to enter the United States instead of reacting to that a week or two later. We're also keeping track of uh, travel restriction timelines. If you have questions on that, we have a issue brief fact sheet called uh, COVID-19 travel restrictions timeline as well. Yeah, so those are definitely some great resources to check out there. And bringing this all together, 
obviously I work on the uh, media side of things, but if, if you really turn on any kind of cable TV uh, news network or read any article you find online covering the coronavirus and, you know, these restrictions that countries are implementing, it, it's almost like I'm seeing all these journalists and and TV hosts applauding the efforts of these countries. And, you know, I, I brought this up earlier where, you know, the leaders of these countries called out Trump for having these these kind of border security initiatives. Again, if, if there wasn't a pandemic, then they'd be saying, oh, no, this is inhumane. This is cruel. Um, and it shows the hypocrisy. And, you know, I, I think that people deep down might realize that, hey, you know what, border security is essential for a country to remain a country and to, for it to have, you know, to, for it to be a sovereign nation. And um, I think people are just not really wanting to admit that just because Trump is in office and they're trying to stymie him in any way, to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's all we have for today. We hope that you've enjoyed today's remotely recorded episode on how the coronavirus impacts immigration. Join us next time. As a reminder, we'll be releasing a new episode every other Monday. If your friends want to know where they can find this podcast, simply tell them where wherever podcasts are found. You can also visit our website, www.fairus.org, or our Twitter, at Fair Immigration. Remember to wash your hands often and to not hoard toilet paper. Until next time, this has been Understanding Immigration, presented by FAIR.